Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Plant Powered People Podcast with your hosts, Michelle Kane and Tony Okamoto. Today, we have an exciting episode with Rip Esselstyn. If you're listeners, you may know that we already had Rip's dad on the show, um, Dr. Esselstyn, and he had talked all about preventing and reversing heart disease, but his whole family is actually quite incredible. <laughs> and I've been following Rip's work for, for a long time. And so we were super excited to bring him on the show to tell his very unique and very super inspiring story. Uh, a little bit about Rip. After spending 10 years as a professional triathlete, he joined the Austin, Texas Fire Department. And he learned that some of his fellow firefighters were in pretty dire physical condition and that they had extremely high cholesterol and that more firefighters die from heart attacks and actual fires. So he took action and we're really excited to share his story and tell you what happened. What makes his story so cool is that Rip and his fellow firefighters shattered misconceptions about the types of people that are plant-based. They normalized for America that people who have really strenuous physically demanding jobs can thrive on a plant-based. So we hope you enjoy Rip's story as much as we do. Before we dive into this episode, we want to give a big shout out to our sponsors of the show. We've got Carviva and Maxine's Heavenly Cookies. Carviva is a really awesome fruit and veggie superfood juice and smoothie company. And I really appreciate them because if you look on their bottles at the ingredients, they're so clean. They're made with the healthiest whole foods. For example, their cacao chestnut and pear smoothie is made with oats and flax seeds and quinoa and ground chestnut. They have juices that have mung bean sprouts that they grow hydroponically in their own um, facilities. So they're just a really innovative, cool, clean brand. Speaking of innovation, I I don't drink, my husband don't drink, and a lot of our friends don't drink alcohol. So I really appreciate their Unwind line, which is an alcohol-free alternative to wine. And it's a first of its kind. Check that out, as well as their juices and smoothies over at carviva.com, K-A-R-V-I-V-A.com. Next up, we have Maxine's Heavenly. Now I have to say I've been on a huge health kick lately, especially after all our health-inspired podcast episodes we've been recording, but I still do have cookie cravings and that's where I love Maxine's Heavenly to come in. They make better for you homemade style cookies. They have both crunchy cookies and soft baked cookies that are sweetened without any refined sugars. And their first ingredient of their soft baked cookies are oats. So that is pretty cool. And you can find them at maxineheavenly.com. I really love their almond cookies and any chocolate chunk cookies because they're all fantastic. I just love the chocolate chunks so much. You can find them at maxinesheavenly.com and you can save 25% with the code PLANTS25, P-L-A-N-T-S-2-5. Again, that is at maxinesheavenly.com. Hi, Rip. Welcome to the Plant Powered People podcast. Plant Powered People podcast. A lot of peas, a lot of, <laughs> a lot of, uh, <clears throat> what's that called? Alliteration. Uh, illi- 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 a lot of alliterations there. Yep. Is that intentional? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it rolls off the tongue and also people remember it. Right. This is probably before, how long have you had the podcast? Uh, this is our fourth, this is the, uh, close to the end of our fourth season. Ah, so, uh, so it was four, before the, four years? Before the PPP loans went out. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we thought yes. oh, this name is a great idea, but then now that we have to say it 500,000 times and we're always tripping over ourselves, we're like, mm, maybe we should have gone with a one word name next time. But Plant Powered um, People Podcast. No, I, it's good. It's like it's like when Nick Cage in um, <clears throat> Valley Girls, <clears throat> he had a thing as, uh, where he would say, uh, they, what would he say? He would say, um, 
Well, Peter Piper picked a pepper. I guess I did. Anyway, it reminds me of that. <laughs> yeah, it's like we're warming up for acting. Like, like before you're going to go on the stage and you have to do a whole bunch of alliteration. We get to do that yeah. every time before our podcast. Um, anyway, we're so excited to have you on the show. Um, I actually remember reading The Engine 2 Diet, your book, back in 2009. I had just graduated college. I had just started a YouTube channel about vegan things. And someone gave me your book and said I had to read it. And I will be honest, at first I thought, I'm not a firefighter and I'm not really so much about diet culture. So, and I'm young, like, does this relate to me? But once I opened the book, I could not put it down. It was riveting. (laughs) And the story is so powerful. I ended up finishing that book. I actually made a YouTube video about it. It was one of my first YouTube videos. I bought and sent the book to a whole bunch of people. And I actually don't even have a copy today because it's like every time I get a copy, I have to give it to someone. Because <laughs> I'm like, you have to read this. So it has stood the test of time. Such an Im- nice. amazingly empowering story. And now that we, Tony and I have this podcast, I just was like, we need to bring Rip on to share this story with our community in case they hadn't, haven't, mm-hmm. haven't heard it yet. So we're so excited to have you on today. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Well, it's, um, it's always exciting for me to now <clears throat> going back, gosh, almost 14 years from yeah. when I wrote the, the engine to diet book. And, uh, it was a really exciting time in my life. And looking back now, I just can't believe how all the dots have connected and opportunities presented themselves for, for me to um, become a crusader and an advocate for, you know, all things plant-based. I never dreamed that uh, I'd be where I, where I am today. So would love to go back and, and visit where it all started. Okay. So it I'm really curious to know more about your upbringing because you grew up with parents who were at the forefront of the whole foods movement. Your dad is Dr. Esselstyn, who we just had on our show to talk about reversing heart disease. And <laughs> your, your mom is a whole food recipe superhero. And even your sister, Jane, is a plant-based cookbook author and health educator. So what was that like? And were you always vegan? And how did that all go down? Well, <clears throat> No, nobody in in our family was vegan um, <laughs> uh, until about 1984. When so, just to backtrack for a sec, so we we grew up eating the standard American diet. Now the, there were a couple things that my parents did not allow in our house, and I'm one of four children. You mentioned Jane, so Jane's my younger sister. She's about two and a half years younger than I than I am. I have a brother Ted who's a year younger than I am. And then another brother, Zeb, who's four years younger than I am. So we're very tight. And But the things that my parents would never allow in the house were um, white bread and soda pops. But, I mean, we we did. Oh, gosh. We did chicken. We did steaks. We did hamburgers. We did BLTs. We did spare ribs like every other weekend at this uh place that we had out in the country uh, with friends um you know we would we did ice cream dairy queen burger king mcdonald's it was oh god it was awful looking back on it but that all (laughs) changed uh in 1984 when my father started his research at the cleveland clinic to show that you can not only prevent but in many cases reverse heart disease and he decided And you had him on the podcast, so he probably talked about this. But he decided that if he was going to ask this first cadre of um, really intrepid souls who were considered the the walking dead, if he was going to ask them to do something as radical and extreme as eat, you know, kale and broccoli and steel cut oats and sweet potatoes and uh, cauliflower steaks and stuff like that, then he needed to kind of be lockstep with his patients to understand the journey. And so my mother, who has just been always so infinitely supportive of everything that my father embarks on, and also all of her children, was right there. And, um, And she was really the one that, you know, when the rubber meets the road, the one that made it happen in the kitchen. And this is before there were 
you know, more than maybe one or two cookbooks on eating this way. I mean, this, today it's mm-hmm. a completely different world and universe when it comes to all things plant-based. So they were really the the gutsy, courageous ones that were doing this. And there wasn't that much research and there wasn't that many recipes and stuff like that. So she was like, you know, I think uh, John McDougal has referred to my mother as Julia Childs on steroids. Um, which is so absolutely true. Her, her energy and her enthusiasm, um, and her ability to just keep plowing forward in the face of failure and criticism and everything was really phenomenal. But, but so they started, my mom and dad started in 1984 and, uh, the rest of us kids really didn't pick up that plant strong torch until about 19, for me, it was 1987 after I graduated from the University of Texas at Austin. And now I was free from the athletic training table that, uh, that I was eating at because I was a, a swimmer at the University of Texas. And I would eat there on the training table with the football players and the basketball players and the tennis players and the golfers. And it was, oh gosh, the, mm, I mean, it was chicken fried steak and huge mammoth, you know, lamb and ribs and uh, cheeseburgers and cheese sandwiches and soft serve ice cream machine as much as you want and brownies and apple pie and puddings. And, uh, you know, maybe there were some sides of, you know, black eyed peas and spinach that was dunked in uh, Crisco or, or butter or oil. and the same thing with any other veggies. But so as soon as I graduated, because I know that whenever I went home for Thanksgiving or Christmas or um, sometimes parts of the summer, I would get exposed to what my parents were doing. And I've always been so um, such an avid admirer of my mom and my dad that I never rebelled against this way. I was like, oh, this is really, really cool. And I love the research that my father's doing with these, you know, kind of mortally wounded uh, heart patients. And I was absolutely happy to explore going down this plant-based path. And um, so for me, it's really, I jumped in in January of 1987 and haven't looked back and obviously have just been refining the whole, the whole way of, of living since then. That's a long answer to your question. <laughs> it's just so fascinating. I'm just like, it's, you live the dream, part, well, part, partly, you live the dream of what all our listeners to this podcast are like, oh, my family will never understand. And mm-hmm. it's so cool that you never rebelled against your your parents' philosophy on food and and all the knowledge that they were gaining. Because it must have been hard. Like, did you have challenges when you'd go home and be like, okay, but I, I'm going to sneak off and have a cheeseburger or something like that? Or you were just like, this is delicious and easy. Or even or even something like white bread. I'm going to go have a, right. <laughs> a, a vegetarian sandwich with white bread and a Coke. Uh-huh. Um, no. And, and, and keep in mind, like, before I decided to really, like, do this and do it right in 1987, I would come home and I would be all into it. But then I would come back to, you know, University of Texas at Austin and I'd, I'd do the Domino's pizzas and the, you know, the root beer and all that. I mean, all the naughty stuff, right? The contraband. Um, but, um, uh, it wasn't like, uh, after three or four meals at home, I had to go out to a restaurant and get, you know, something else. But I will well, tell a you big this. Cheers to your mom for cooking amazing food. I bet oh, that's oh. part of it. <laughs> oh, and there were times, I mean, there were times when my mom, I mean, she would make a meal and it, it bombed, it completely bombed. <laughs> um, but, you know, there. There was, but, but, but the, the sentiment behind what she was doing was something that we all admired and respected so much that we basically, you know, we, we sucked it up and said, you know what? Don't make this again or figure out a way to <laughs> figure right. out a way to, to make this a little bit more palatable or something. Yeah. And now, and now I look at, I mean, 
you know, like you guys, I've, I've got a podcast as well. And it's crazy how many people now solicit me to come on the podcast to share their new vegan plant-based recipe book. I mean, the amount of people that are writing recipe books and doing amazing things in this space, it's phenomenal. And there's just no shortage of just delectable, tasty uh, plant-based foods. Yeah, well, thank you for being one of the people paving the way for that because it does feel like, I feel like now I could step back and the work is still being done by 5 million people, you know, but it didn't used to be like that. It used to feel like everything's on your shoulders because there's no one else doing the work and there was about a decade of that. But okay, so- Well, just to to give you an example, like when I first wrote The Engine 2 Diet, the first first iteration of it, the first uh, printing, they were so convinced. So I went with a big publishing house and they were so convinced that the, the United States of America was not ready for a fully plant-based message that they insisted that in a certain number of the recipes I had as an optional ingredient for people to put in um, chicken or fish, right? And, uh, and so, and so after, you know, after it, it was selling very, very well, the number two printing of it, we immediately got rid of the chicken and the fish. And I was, frankly, I was rather upset that they were making this kind of demand, um, of, of the recipe section of the book, but I really wanted the book to get out there and they were turned out to be a fantastic publishing house. and um, so anyway, but that goes to show you back in 2009, how the plant-based thing, it wasn't a thing. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was before Forks Over Knives. It was before all of it. Yeah, it just oh, wasn't oh, on yeah. the radar there, of people. Yeah, there were two big books that had, that had come out, you know, in the previous three, four years. One was The China Study by mm-hmm. Colin Campbell in 2005. And then my father's book, uh, Prevent Reverse Heart Disease, came out in 2007. And then, of course, you have people like, you know, John McDougall, truly one of the the grand the granddaddies of the movement. And his book, I believe, came out in 1986 or 85, uh, McDougall Medicine. And then you had John Robbins that wrote Diet for a New America that came out in 1987. And you've got Dean Ornish, uh, who's got his book, uh, his first book on uh, reversing heart disease that I believe came out in the early 2000s. So, but that's really about it. Yeah. 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 It was a, it was a long road, but it feels like now we're on this just skyrocketing trajectory of, um, just knowledge being mainstream, more mainstream. So that's exciting. It's it's skyrocket. I know I keep interrupting you, but it's skyrocketing and it can't happen fast enough. Yes. Yeah. I know. It's like, it feels like it's happening so fast, but also <laughs> so slow. You're like, wait, but no one around me still is eating plants. So, you know, it's, uh, it, it truly can't happen fast enough, but okay. So I want to get into your firefighting days, but first I'm just curious, how did you get into firefighting and why? And then we can go down that path. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Good question. Um, so as soon as I graduated from the University of Texas in January of 1987, I was trying to figure out what to do for a career. And I majored in speech communications. Um, and I w- went back to Cleveland, Ohio for um, about five, six months. And I was interviewing at a bunch of different companies uh, in a sales position. And I just was like, this feels like a slow, painful death, um, any of these sales jobs. And I went on a couple one-day trial runs with with some of these salespeople. And I came home. I remember coming home one night and telling my parents, that I just, I can't do this. And, and, um, in August of 1986, so I, I hadn't graduated yet. A friend of mine asked me to be his support crew 
for a triathlon that he was doing in Canton, Ohio. And so I was like, oh, sure, I'd love to. So I went down with him and I watched him compete against about a thousand other people. And I saw these stallions, these humans looking stallions cross the finish line. And I've always loved competition, loved it, right? Um, doesn't matter what it is. I love competing. Uh, I have had a background in obviously in swimming, always loved to bike, was always a decent runner. And that seed was planted there. And I can remember telling my parents, you know what? I don't, I don't want to do a nine to five sales job gig. Instead, I want to see if I can be a, a professional triathlete. And so I started as an age grouper and I started competing in different, uh, different triathlons. And within about three months, I had gotten top 10 at three different races they have to be United States triathlon uh, series sanct uh, United States triathlon sank uh, sank let's see what's the word I'm looking for sanctified or something and um, so I was able to get my pro card and so my first race as a as a professional triathlete was the Chicago International Triathlon in August of 1987. And I got ninth place out of over 4,000 people. And I won a check for 900 bucks. And that's all I needed, the, the confidence that I needed to take me down this path. And I did this exclusively for the next decade. Um, and so that's what I did. I was doing the triathlon, swimming, biking, and running. I became one of the premier swimmers in the sport. I became one of the top 10 in the United States uh, at, the, um, at the International Distance Triathlon, which is a 1.5 kilometer swim. It's a 40 kilometer bike and then a 10 kilometer run. And then at about the age of 32, I decided that I was ready. I'd been doing this for almost 10 years. Well, as and, an athlete, were you plant-based that whole time? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yes. That's so that's, amazing. that's one of the things. That's one of the things. As soon as I left University of Texas, and went back to Cleveland. So I'm with my parents, right? And I'm living with my with my parents for about five months before I move back to Austin, Texas to train full time and live on a friend's floor. I kept a little mattress behind his couch. And, uh, and that's all I did. I trained and I ate well and I got to bed on time. And this was like, this is what I did. This was my, my career. Um, and I, you know, I loved it. But at some point, the the flying in airplanes and racing for a for a paycheck and going after sponsors got got old, and I was looking forward to my next move. And I had some triathlete friends who were also firefighters. These were age group triathlete friends um, who were firefighters, and they said, "You know what? You should consider being a fire a firefighter. It is like." No two shifts are ever the same. You go out every shift and you do like 10 to 15 good deeds. And um, it's really like a big old slumber party where we have all kinds of fun and, you know, we, uh, we do good deeds. And so I went out for a ride at Central Station, which is really the animal house of, uh, of all the fire stations here in Austin. There's probably 46, 47 now. We're actually, Austin is now the 11th largest city in the United States. And we, we've got over probably 1,200 firefighters here. Um, so I did a ride out at Central and I was like, this is amazing. Doing such good work with, and you're doing it as a team. And remember, this is something that I'd been without is doing triathlons for almost a decade. It was very solo. Um, I had training partners, but it was for the most part a very solo uh, profession. And, um, the thing is it took me three years to get on with the Austin fire department because the first year I applied, there were over 4,000 people applying for 12 positions, um, which is, which is rough. And if you were ex military, you got five extra points on the civil service exam. And so the civil service exam was a hundred multiple choice question. And, um, 
And I remember I got a 96 and it put me at like 220th on the list. And I was like, oh my gosh. But I kept trying and I kept trying. And then the third year that I tried, I was fortunate fortunate enough to be like 36 on the list and they were taking like 41 people. Um, So I got on, I I actually, after doing a six month uh, fire suppression school and also getting my emergency medical technician uh, license, I came out to Central Station where I did that one ride out and it had two engines there. Each engine is occupied by four firefighters. It had a truck with four firefighters and an EMS vehicle. That's that's two EMS people. So there were 18 people at that station that are sleeping there, eating there. Um, You would not believe the testosterone. And it was all guys. Back then, there were no women, no women. Um, and uh, so anyway, I will stop there and let you guys ask a question. <laughs> well, first, I was wondering if part of your reason for becoming a firefighter was to save lives, like because obviously you're putting your life on the line oh. and it's just known to be the ultimate yeah. role of yeah. like representing strength and also dedicating your own life to yeah. save lives. Yeah. No, absolutely. When I say do good deeds, because I think I said, yeah, to do good deeds, but uh, mm-hmm. in parentheses after that is to help people and to save lives. Absolutely. There's no, there's nothing quite as gratifying, especially when you're doing that, when you're responding to that, that, uh, that tone, that 911 emergency call that goes off and you are helping somebody or some family when they are at the, when they need it the absolute most. Right. Um, and so, no, yeah, super gratifying. Super. Okay. So you become a firefighter partly to save lives. And then at some point you realize the leading cause of death for firefighters is not fires, but heart attacks. Like when does yeah. this sort of come together in your mind uh, to where you're seeing this discrepancy of you're out there saving lives every day and yet you're putting your life on the line, but most people are actually putting their life on the line in a different way. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, what was interesting is that um, when I signed up for this job, I thought that the vast majority of our calls, we would be making fires. You know, mm-hmm. that's what the name is. We're firefighters. Um, what I quickly discovered, but it probably took two years, is that we we made fires, but the fires were kind of few and far between. The vast majority of our calls were medical calls. And so we were responding to the, the, the dearth of chronic Western disease that is at America's doorstep right now. So, you know, people with chest pain, people that um, have, have literally like redlined, they have, they've had a heart attack and they're pulseless and breathless and we got to try and bring them back to life. Uh, people uh, that with a diabetic uh, emergency because their blood glucose has gotten too low. And you wouldn't believe how many type two diabetes calls we went on for people whose blood sugar had, uh, was either too high or too low. Um, Lifting assistance calls for people that were over typically 300 pounds and EMS needed us to come and help them move them into the ambulance. Stroke, people with strokes, um, Alzheimer's and dementia. Um, And then when we're talking to them, we always ask them, what medications are you on? And then we hear the the cocktail of medications that they're on, how they've already had, this is their third heart attack or their second brush across the bow with with breast cancer or some sort of cancer. the, you know, oh yeah, I've got uh, high blood pressure. Uh, I'm on these medications for cholesterol, these for diabetes. It is, it is vast. And so that is, so the irony in all that is, is that, you know, the ultimate life saving event happened at our own fire station, right? With one of my fellow firefighting brothers who at the age of 33 had a total cholesterol of 344 milligrams per deciliter. 
and who had a family history of men in his family perishing from heart disease before the age of 50. I'd like to take a moment of gratitude for those firefighters like you and your colleagues, because I have had experience with firefighters two different times, and both of those situations were similar to how you described. One, my grandfather had a heart attack, and I remember getting there, and it's so scary and to have people who are calm and collected and who are helping you understand and navigate the situation is so calming. And then the other one was actually recently when a loved one lost consciousness, and it was um, the the first question was what what medications were you taking and and mm-hmm. part of part of the loss of consciousness was because of the the medication. And so I, I'm just so grateful to have these public servants who are providing services, especially here in California, where there is really great risk of fire, but, but also people who are providing families with comfort and calmness in uncertain, super scary times. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, I can't even tell you how much I love and adore, um, firefighters, men and women. Most of us are cut from the same cloth and have huge, huge hearts and are willing to, for the most part, you know, risk it all. And, um, there's a certain, you know, um, uh, fraternal bond between all firefighters really around the world. And I can remember going to the police fire world games in 2001 in Indianapolis, Indiana, and just being amazed at how, how well, um, firefighters from around the world just kind of got along and you just immediately feel this, this connection and this bond. Um, because you know what what we've all kind of been through, what we've seen. And I can tell you that, you know, when, when you have a crew of four or five and you go on some of these nutty, nutty calls, um, let's say it's a traffic accident where you have two f- fatalities and uh, you're doing triage and you're trying to figure out, you know, who needs help and whose life can we save and, and, and all that stuff, you immediately, you bond with your firefighting brothers and sisters that you make that call with in a hurry, in a hurry. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things I can tell you is that a lot of firefighters are now suffering from PTSD because of mm-hmm. what they've had to see and witness. And, uh, you know, the amount of death and destruction that, uh, that firefighters see on a consistent basis, it, um, it, it, it rattles you. It rattles you. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine it's just tragedy after tragedy that you have to be exposed to. It must've also been crazy that on one end of your life, your dad was working on preventing and reversing heart disease and had this solution and was you know, saving patients at the end. And on the other hand, you're seeing almost every day, uh, the result of people that didn't get that help and knowing like things could have been different. I know that's something that most of us here listening hold with our own friends and family who it's like, you know, it's hard to figure out how to get that message or that information out there. And you see the consequences of just someone not knowing the information that's out there. Um, so that's a lot to carry as well. Um, yeah, isn't that isn't that the most? That is the great irony, is that you know, as um, as a profession, and you just said it, you know, firefighters more than any other profession have the highest incident of heart attacks and death uh, on the job, and um, and my father really was able to provide the most profound evidence in the medical literature showing that we can actually reverse the number one killer of not only firefighters, but also uh, Americans just by changing what we eat. 
Yeah. So what was the moment that inspired you to take action and to kind of shift that focus and try and save the lives of your fellow firefighters? Well, take us through that journey. Yeah. Um, well, keep in mind that, um, I had been with, I had worked with some of these firefighters for about six years. And I remember I came out to central station, which is fire station number one. And, uh, and then in 2001 or 2002, I made the transition to fire station number two. Um, it was just time. It was time for a change from not sleeping at all and 18 guys at a fire station and going to a smaller um, one engine firehouse. And a couple of the guys, we all together, we went to fire station two. And um, we were super close, just like family. And one night we were sitting out on the porch, looking out over Martin Luther King Boulevard, staring at McDonald's that was to the left of us. Uh, Jimmy John sandwich shop that was to the right of us, Pizza Hut. Um, uh, what else? Anyway, just a litany of different fast food restaurants. And we decided we just made this bet, like, okay, let's see who's the healthiest of of all of us. And so the next day we drove down, took the, the actually the fire engine, and we drove to this lab and we all got got tested. And that's when um, my buddy JR, his cholesterol came back and it was 344. And that's when he, he was visibly shaken because in, in the, and Noah's firefighters, we have an annual physical. Um, and the highest that he had ever seen it was maybe 260. And so 333 was now ridiculously high. And then he also shared with us that his father had, um, a triple bypass surgery at the age of 50. His grandfather died at 49 and his great grandfather died at like 48 from heart disease. And so, uh, he, um, obviously had a genetic predisposition in addition to the fact that he was a self-proclaimed third generation redneck. So every meal, he typically had some sort of fried meat that was on his plate. And so, that was the impetus where I was like, guys, you know, the research that my father has done, you know, what I was able to do as a, you know, as a world-class triathlete fueling myself this way. And, uh, you guys are not going to be shrinking violets. So let's, let's start doing this and let's just start with lunch. And so we started where we would come in together as a unit and we would take turns who would buy the ingredients and we would just make the, we called it the all mighty burritos and it was brown rice and beans and onions and garlic and spinach and then we had a nice uh little red sauce on top and we did that for lunch for several months and then we decided to up the game and um we decided to go lunch and dinner and uh and then we went from lunch and dinner to lunch and dinner to breakfast and then lunch before we left and that's also when I then I challenged JR. I said, do this, and, but don't just do it at the firehouse. Because know that when you come into work at, at, in Austin, you're 24 hours on, 48 hours off. So we cut, we come in at noon and we get off at noon the next day. And then you'd be off for 48 hours. So I said, JR, also continue to do this at home. And then let's do this for 28 days, right? Give it like the a real like firefighter effort here. And then let's see, uh, let's see where the chips land. And his cholesterol dropped from 343. I said 333. It was 344. It dropped from 344 to 196 in 28 days. And he dropped like 14 pounds and his energy increased and he was sleeping better and his acid reflux went away and no more constipation. So that's really what started this tradition at fire station two on the C shift um and that that started in 2003 and then remember i wrote i wrote my first book in in uh in 2000 and well it came out in 2009 i spent 2 years writing it 2000 and early 2000 and or actually late 2006 is when i started it 
So what happened next? Did you then take this just success story and this family of tight-knit firefighters who were either cheering him on or wanting to try for themselves? How did you expand it to the whole of Engine 2? And then what did that look like? How did it go for people? You know... Well, like I said, we started with just the almighty burritos for lunch. And then once, once we had, you know, kind of moved to, um, lunches, dinners and breakfasts, and then leftovers for dinner for lunch before we went home, um, we were, we were in, and, um, I mean, we took turns. We, we had a list on the back of, um, I think it was Scotty, who was my Lieutenant, his locker where we put down whose turn it was to, to shop and also not only shop, but also decide what the, the meal was going to be. And the goal was, and you guys would appreciate this because you know, you're plant-based on a budget. The goal was always to see who could make the most amazing meal for the least amount. And Ooh, because it, it, because awesome. at the, because at the end of the day, you know, he would show the receipt and then we'd split it up. So if it was 20 bucks, you know, we each, we'd each toss in $5. Um, and, um, and the one thing you never want to do at a fire station is cook short, meaning there's not enough for everybody. If you do that, that's a big, it's a big no, no. And you will get razzed forever for that. That's but, also yeah. my, like my personal fear. That's my personal fear yeah. is hosting a party and my guests running out of food, uh, before, before they're done eating. Whew. Oh man, I understand. Let's go. Let's, Lunch. Let's, let's finish the job. Yeah. I love it. Uh, so lunch is usually just a sweet potato with um with some sort of beans. Usually it's um I I I like saving black beans usually for dinner. <clears throat> so let's just say it's a sweet potato with pinto beans. And then um I usually, you know, batch cook. We usually batch cook on the weekend. So I've got all these sweet potatoes. So I'll take a big honking sweet potato. I don't actually eat the skin. Uh, so I usually take the skin off and then I kind of um, cut it up and then mush it up with a fork on top of a bed of either um, loose leaf spinach or uh, chopped up kale or romaine lettuce. Then I put down the sweet potato. Then I put down the pinto beans and then it's usually mango again. I just love mango in this dish. And, uh, it's a little bit of low sodium tamari. If I have a, um, if I have a, um, what is it? Oh, if I have a salsa, I'll put some salsa on top and then I always finish it off with a little sriracha. And that's my favorite lunch. Unless, unless I've got leftovers from dinner that, I put into a pita bread sandwich or on a bed of greens. I always try and we always try and get green leafies in at, uh, at actually at every meal. And then for dinner, um, Tony and Michelle, it is, I'm just going to say rice and beans extravaganza. So it's, it's brown rice. I usually, you know, uh, if we don't have something in the rice cooker, I'll just take out the instant three minute, you know, brown rice that you make in the microwave. Uh, throw that in a bowl, put on the black beans, put on the uh, sliced up tomatoes, uh, water chestnuts, bell peppers, uh, half of an avocado. Um, what else? Green onions. And then do the, um, and then do the sriracha. And, uh, and that's really like, you know, that would be my, that's not only my favorite breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But to me, it's also the most economical breakfast, lunch, and dinner if you're on a budget. You just named my perfect meal. That's, that is it. It sounds delicious. I'm salivating over here thinking about your dinner. Well, Rip Rip was describing the sweet potato. Tony, I was picturing your plant-based on a budget cookbook. And I was like, that's the cover. (laughs) Before it was mashed up and put on salad. (laughs) How about that? Wow. I love it. I love it. I love it. Okay. Um, well, I feel like we could talk to you forever. There's a lot of work that you do that like currently, um, helping people, you know, eat plant strong and you have immersion programs and you have books and resources for people. So, um, 
we will include a bunch of that in the show notes, but I would love to hear from you if there's any final words of inspiration you'd like to share and then where people can find you and if there's any just like must, must consume resources, recommendations that you have. Um, no, thanks. This has been, this has been a lot of fun, Michelle and Tony. Thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, for anybody that's interested and you want to know more about what we're, what we do at, at Plan Strong, you can go to planstrong.com and we have a very robust website with all of our different offerings, as you mentioned, uh, from our, um, six day retreat programs in Sedona, Arizona and Black Mountain, North Carolina, that's right outside of Asheville. We have our meal planner. We have our um, our online coaching program with some fantastic coaches. And then if you want to go to plantstrongfoods.com, we have our, this is really a spinoff of the Engine 2 products at Whole Foods. And uh, it's called Plant Strong and it's they're available in other outlets besides Whole Foods. We've gone outside the Whole Foods universe under the... Um, yeah, the new name Plan Strong. And we also do a lot of direct-to-consumer with all of our products. So from our cereals to our granolas to our pizza crust kits to our ready-to-eat uh, chilies and stews and our unsalted broths to kind of help elevate cooking. So anyway, all those are there. Of course, I also have, you know, over the course of the last 12 years, I've written four books. Um, so it was the first was Engine 2 and then in 2013, I wrote Plant Strong that is 36 different chapters, and each one really um, addresses all the different objections that people will bring to you when you let them know that you're, you're plant-based or thinking about going plant-based. And so I, I, uh, I make it easy for people to help uh, when people approach them with, well, where do you get enough protein? And this is going to be too expensive, and there's no variety. And what about athletes? And what about my children? So uh, that's nice. And then my third book is called the engine Two seven day rescue diet. And this, and we, 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 Tony and Michelle, we really should have a whole episode that talks about this, but this is, it was the learnings that I developed in my first five years working at whole foods. When John Mackey asked me to run these seven day medical immersion programs for whole food markets on healthiest team members. They had to medically qualify in order to attend. And we did before and after biometric screenings, everything from weight, blood pressure, complete lipid panel from total cholesterol, LDL, HDL, triglycerides, fasting glucose. And the results were just jaw dropping how quickly the human body wants to right the ship and and get healthy and it was it far exceeded anything that i ever imagined that my father ever thought could happen um but but this is what happens when you're when you're doing it and you're doing it right and when we have people locked up in jail right in either sedona or or uh, outside of Asheville, north carolina and they're 10 miles away from the closest store you got no choice but to eat the food that we serve and the body always responds. So, mm-hmm. um, so that was my third book because I wanted people to understand, listen, anybody can do anything for seven days. And my bet is your eyes will be opened up to a new way of looking at food and the power of food that you never even dreamed was possible. And so, yeah, you may not be perfect or even plant-based uh, 100% going forward but you will have, have changed your relationship with food. And then right. um, the last book I wrote is, was called The Engine 2 Cookbook with my sister Jane, and it's about 150 uh, mouth-watering, lip-smacking, body-slimming recipes to live mm-hmm. plant strong. Yeah. That's awesome. Rip, we'll yeah. have to send you, uh, Tony and I made a mini documentary, it's a 10 minute mini documentary called Seven Days. And we took someone who was eating a fast food diet and we put them on a plant-based diet for seven days and recorded everything. Um, and it, it was pretty inspiring. I'll have to send you, wow. send you that. I've also had the Rip's Big Bowl cereal that you have on the Plant Strong Foods website. And it is so good. So if you're just looking for a, an easy out to not have to do the work yourself, I endorse that wholeheartedly. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Thanks. Um, well, I'll have to get you two 
on my podcast. That would be fun. Oh my gosh. That would be awesome. That would be so cool. That would be yeah. so cool. Um, yeah. Awesome. And we'll link, yeah. And maybe we'll, we'll link your podcast too. Yes. Oh, I, I forgot to talk about that. Yeah. We got the Plan Strong podcast that's been going on. Uh, so you guys launched yours, you said four years ago, I launched mine in, uh, in January of, of, uh, of 2019. So yeah, you guys were, I think we're a little ahead of me then. A, a little bit, but it's, ex- it's, <laughs> yeah, it's exciting having resources that you can use and learn from while you are driving or doing the dishes is a true gift yeah. to humanity. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and also everyone resonates with a different personality and approach and, um, having more resources to choose from is an amazing gift. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is. And there's lots. Yeah. But plant powered and plant strong. Sounds good. Yeah. We're a match made. Okay. Thank uh, you so much again for joining our podcast. And we will have to get you back on talking about all, all of your books and digging into each of them because they all sound amazing. Uh, well, I would, I would love that. And uh, thanks for the opportunity to, uh, to join you guys today. And um, all the best to you guys and, and all your listeners. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Quick reminder to check out our sponsors of the show. We've got Carviva for some functional organic juices and smoothies and their unwind collection. Uh, You can find them at carviva.com. And also don't forget to pick up some healthier for you cookies from Maxine's Heavenly. You can get 25% off with the code plants25 at maxine'sheavenly.com. That was a really great conversation with Rip. He has shown in multiple ways how vegans can thrive on a plant-based diet. And he's done so as a triathlete. I know people are always wondering, can people who eat plant-based thrive while doing really hardcore physical activity? And he not only did it as a triathlete, but also as a firefighter. Firefighters are superheroes and he did it and also had his whole fire station doing the thing. So um, kudos to Rip for being inspiring to me, Michelle, his whole fire station and the whole country, really. Um, That was a great conversation. I definitely encourage all of you listening to check out his book. If you haven't already, already, you can read the full story, share it with a friend. It's called The Engine 2 Diet, and we'll link it up in the show notes. We'll also, if you're new to listening to the Plant Powered People podcast, we've done a whole slew of episodes with really inspiring, health-inspired messages um, and individuals. So we will link those in the show notes as well. You can find them at plantpoweredpodcast.com. We also have a podcast email list. I I'm not sure if all of you know that, but we have an email list and we send an email when our new podcast episodes come out with a little synopsis of, of who it's featuring and what it's about. Um, and also sometimes share some other fun things we have going on. So you can subscribe to that also at plantpoweredpodcast.com. Hope you all have the most beautiful day. Eat some healthy foods and lots of plants. And we'll talk to you in the next episode. Bye. Bye. <laughs>